When my parents moved out of their home, my dad handed me a small hardcover book and said, I know you like to cook and that you like old stuff, so you should take this. This small black book, big enough to fit in the breast pocket of a jacket, had been given to my dad by his uncle Antonio. Antonio, my dad said, had used it when he worked in Boston, Massachusetts with my grandfather Giuseppe somewhere around 1913. My dad said the book was used by the restaurant staff as a reference point of what ingredients went into some of the dishes they served. There's even a cure for hangovers and quick relief for burns, if you can believe it. It's called Gansell's Ready Reference of Menu Terms, published in 1908 by Chef Joseph Gansell. The opening page describes it as the most complete and concise glossary of over 5,000 names ever compiled and published. And on today's show, I'm serving up some food history. Test, 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 check, one, two, check, check. Test, one, one, check, one, one. Coming down in three, two, one. This is Station to Station. I'm Joe Pavia. I had no idea this book, which for years was in a cupboard above the refrigerator in our kitchen, had any historical importance or significance to the family. A search started online first, and what initially appeared was a review written in 1908 by American journalist, satirist, and critic H.L. Mencken. Mencken writes, It is to relieve the world of this burden that M. Joseph Gansell, the eminent chef of the Hotel Belle Claire, has composed and published his ready reference of menu terms, an exhaustive and excellent encyclopedia of the whole subject and the fruit, as M. Gansell says, with all due modesty, of 35 years of hard service in the most artistic kitchens of Europe and America. And then he goes on to mention that Gansell dedicates the work to 29 uh, artists, as he called them, uh, chefs at the time in New York, in alphabetical order, including uh, one who worked at the Waldorf Astoria and uh, a number of other chefs in New York, and even one, the Baron de Rothschild of Vienna. Mencken goes on to say, It is a book of overwhelming merits, a book fairly bulging with information. It gives the formulae of 150 separate and distinct sauces, of 400 omelets, of no less than 600 soups. What is to be said of such a one-volume library, of such a bottomless pit of learning? The reviewer stands flabbergasted, paralyzed, silent. That's right. Flabbergasted, paralyzed, silent. H.L. Mencken words, not mine. I caught up with someone who knows a lot about food history in the U.S. Jan Whitaker has been blogging on her website, Restauranting Through History, since 2008. If you like food and if you like history, you'll want to check out her website. It is a great read. And there's a link, actually, on the intro of this podcast. Jan Whitaker also wrote a blog about a Gansell book she owns called The Encyclopedia of Modern Cooking. Jan Whitaker joins me from her home in Massachusetts via Skype. Take me back as to uh, exactly where you found it, how you became aware of this uh, uh, turn of the 20th century cookbook. Uh, I think I had seen it advertised in some hotel uh, journals. I look at a lot of old restaurant trade journals and, and hotels and that sort of thing, and I think I had seen it advertised. But then I was at a, um antique book show actually in walking distance of my house, um, which is a really good one that's held every October. And usually I'm not looking so much for books, more like menus and postcards and that sort of thing. But I did look at some books and then I, I saw this one and I, I was intrigued by it. It's a small book. You said you have one too. And mine is about four by six. 
and um, maybe three quarters of an inch thick. And it just is packed full of terminology and, and a lot of it is very antique sound now and what makes it kind of fun to read. Um, but so I thought, oh, I think I'll get that because I'm always looking for things to acquire for my library and research. And it's it's nice if you have it on your desk rather than having to go to a library or search for it somewhere. I had an opportunity to to take a look at, at some of the um, uh, the recipes because I guess this this version had um, had to do with um, uh, it was specifically for waiters. This um, menu yes, was for waiters right. yeah. so that they could. And this yes. is what my father explained, and you said the the same thing. Um, but uh, I was intrigued that it was they they uh, put in ketchup. Ketchup was under the sauces, and it was explained how it, it uh, was prepared in bottles and served that way. Um, yeah. So I want to want to talk to you a bit about some of the recipes that that you may have found there. But first of all, it just it take us back to who is Joseph Gansell? Uh, understand he he was from uh, he was from France and had come to yeah. America at the turn in of in eighteen ninety two, I think it was, okay. um, and. You know, most of the chefs that were in, that is the better paid chefs, the, the, the professional chefs in America at that time, that is the late 19th, early 20th century, they were all European trained. We had no training for chefs in the United States, absolutely none. Um, probably not in Canada either, I, I suspect. And uh, so they all came from mostly Germany, France. Italy, Switzerland, a lot of them came from Switzerland. Um, and I suppose maybe they could make more money here. I don't know. But he did have a long career mm -hmm. in France before he came to the United States. So I'm not sure what prompted him to come here, really. So was the, were these books then, though, the fact that he was, um, uh, he refers to many of the chefs at the, the big hotels, um, yeah. was, was he a supporter of theirs? Yes, he was. I, I think those chefs were uh, had sort of a mutual admiration society. They understood each other, perhaps in a way that native-born Americans didn't really understand them. Because, you know, our, our culture, it's not a very, um, it's not very devoted to cuisine. It definitely was not then, maybe more so now. And so I think that being a chef and being so involved with food in in with this long cultural line of all the terms and everything, that would be a little bit of a curiosity to Americans. So I think the chefs really bonded with each other. They belonged to societies. They would have competitions, um, and many of them were in the Northeast of the United States. So they probably had a chance to meet each other too. Um, considered an art form at the time, it was by them, and and probably to a to a number of patrons of of theirs. But to the average American, no, they they couldn't care less about it. Probably, I believe it was in in the Encyclopedia of Modern Cooking that I was reading, and I found it online. I, I know you you mentioned it; it's great to have on hand, and uh, that was my only opportunity to take a look at it. Was online, and they actually referred to just some of the references of a um, a clam bake. I believe is what caught my 
II, when they said that it was the lowest form of eating, where you would dig a <laughs> hole on a beach. <laughs> and of course, New Englanders, they, they think it's like a sacred tradition, right? Oh, for sure. And it was an Elvis movie, too, <laughs> yeah. so how can but you go wrong? <laughs> yeah, that's very funny. <laughs> now, when he published uh, his books, um, when he published this book specifically, um, was it the idea to bring the recipes of the best restaurants in the U.S. to homes, or was it specifically made for restaurants, owners, and chefs to share with each other? Oh, yeah, it was for the trade, I think. I, I don't think that, uh, you know, mo so many of these terms in here, it's more terms than recipes and, and explanations mm -hmm. um, that are very abbreviated, as a matter of fact. So, so the average home cook would not have found this at all useful. I think it was really for the trade. It was for, uh, like you said, the chefs and the waiters, because the French cuisine was was the exalted cuisine at the time, even if very few people ever experienced it. It was quite expensive, but it was the thing. And yet a lot of the waiters didn't necessarily know French. Okay. You know, they might have been German or Italian and, and not known French at all. Had cookbooks not reached bookstores yet at the turn of the century, uh, 20th oh, no, century in the lot, U.S.? There were a lot of cookbooks. Okay. Many cookbooks. Okay. All right. But yeah. as you mentioned, those this specifically uh, for the terms to under understand. And, and I guess also to, to educate the, and I assume it would be the wealthy people who were coming to eat at these fancy restaurants I to don't understand. Think they, no, I don't think they ever saw this book, probably. I think it's strictly a professional item. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but but those specifically for the waiter, uh, if we can go you know, to yeah, my menu terms, the, for, that for they the would waiter. be educating them. Well, also, not just the waiter, but maybe whoever made up the menu, mm -hmm. they could check the spelling because, you know, um, even if you spoke French, you might misspell things. So I think it's kind of a guide. It's kind of a – and, you know, and it's also um, – you think, oh, I wanted to make that thing with onion and capers. What's that called? You know, it's kind of you could check on the sauces and make sure that you've got the right name, that sort of thing. Some recipes, though, by today's standards would, would probably be considered eccentric to the North American fast food palate. Like, is it? I believe I saw a turtle, roast, locust, and what's with all the yes. egg dishes? <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> no, th this is uh, way beyond... <laughs> the average person's diet here. <laughs> um, there are some very peculiar, uh, you know, things. N even though now we have the, what is it, the tail-to-nose kind of supposed, you know, eating of the entire animal. But, uh, you know, I, I was looking at there were two pages of recipes for tripe, which is an intestine, stomach, you know. Um, oh, yeah. I don't... I don't think there's just a huge demand for that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now. But the fact that there's so many, you know, that there are like 15 uh, different ways of preparing tripe. Hmm. Wow. Uh, <laughs> That's all I can say. Yeah, wow. definitely. Definitely. Oh. Tell me, uh, so how many egg dishes then are there in the menu? Oh, the egg? 477 egg dishes. Did you ever think, Jan, that you could do <laughs> so much with eggs? <laughs> No, I really would never have ever occurred to me. If you said, how many egg recipes are there in the French, you know, uh, tradition? Maybe I, if I said 200, I would think that was a gigantic number. So. Sure. 
Uh, when uh, when you first uh, or just uh, when you see a book like this, a historical um, encyclopedia, as it were, do you do you actually uh, sample any of the the menus or the uh, recipes rather that they have? I guess they're, well, they're not really recipes; they're more so items. No, I, I don't because um, I have more than enough recipes right now that I basically don't use <laughs> a lot of them, um, and I. I'm more of a historian than a cook, so no, I've never tried any of the recipes or the, you know, it, even some of them are not recipes, but you could probably figure out how to make it once you see what the ingredients are, but I've never tried them. Sure. What? They don't appeal to me that much, truthfully. Okay, okay. They're too complicated, I think. Yep. All right. I agree. Uh, there's a lot of the terms that certainly I don't understand and I'd never heard of before. Which exactly. I found intriguing because I, I always seem to go to the chicken recipes. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's this um, high French cooking, and that it's really not so popular anymore. Yeah. You would have to even in New York City, uh, there aren't that many restaurants that that can produce this kind of food anymore, or that there aren't that many people that want it. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I was going to ask you that. Like, would you say that some of these recipes still hold up today? But the fact that there are not that many French restaurants, I'd be, the answer would be no. Not that much, no. I think they they have sort of passed into um, almost a kind of quaintness now. What what was though in the turn of the twentieth century? What was the appeal of a uh, French cooking? And you have to educate me on this because growing up Italian in an Italian household, of course, I always thought Italian was the big deal. Yeah, well, I like Italian, too. Um, well, it, it represented status. So if you were a wealthy person, it wasn't enough just to have money. and You had to have culture, too. And so it was, if you went to the finest restaurants, this is still true today, um, you could name drop, you could maybe get to know the waiters, um, you could be seen as one of their best customers, and... Know, maybe you would get a kind of education uh, from eating unusual food and learning to like it. So it was, you know, it was a status thing, and you would be seen there by other people, and it could add to your sort of um, halo. Jan, you write a fascinating blog. Um, I, I follow you on WordPress, and I've uh, checked out your your website, and uh, it's um, it, I guess it appeals to my food senses and my history senses. What attracted you to to write about food and to write about uh, restauranting through history in in the U.S. and beyond? Well, it's a subject I've been interested in for a long time, and, and the first book that I wrote was on the history of tea rooms which um, I know you have those in Canada, or have them too, um, which were mainly places women went. And so I was sort of interested in women's history. It just grew from there, from one thing to another, really. And I, I find restaurants are places where you can study a culture, in a sense. I mean, it gives you a clue into the culture and society and the way people live what they eat, all those things, you know, just that curiosity. When you read some of the, the recipes and the foods that were served long ago, do you get, um, I guess the word melancholy, I was going to say sad, long for those days to maybe return at some point, or is it just... No. No? no okay. Not at all. No, I, I, I have this uh, historical curiosity, but it, it's not really nostalgia. I mean, sometimes people think that I must 
love to go to old time restaurants. Not at all. When I go, I go to the latest, you know, if I, we're going to spend money, go to the latest thing, um, not to, you know, a restaurant that's been in business for a long, long time. There are some still around. Truthfully, I would avoid it. I would rather go to a place that represents now than someplace that's clinging to some kind of past history. Jen, thank you so much. Thank you, Joe. Jen Whitaker, restaurantingthroughhistory.com, a website you'll want to check out if you love food and you love food history. An excellent read. Hey, I'm still reading about H.L. Mencken, the reviewer who stands flabbergasted, paralyzed, and silent about this uh, book, ready reference of uh, menu terms. Now, in the same review where he stood flabbergasted, paralyzed, and silent, Mencken indicates that he doesn't like what Gansell does to crabs. He says, quote, And Gansell is wrong again when he says that soft crabs before being fried should be dipped in a mixture of milk and flour or breaded in the English fashion. The English know nothing whatever about frying soft crabs, and neither do the cooks of New York. And here's what got me. If a waiter should set before a Baltimore epicure a plate of soft crabs fried in flour or breadcrumbs, there would be at once the blood-curdling sound of a waiter's skull cracking beneath the impact of a chair leg. My goodness, Mencken inciting a rumble if soft crabs aren't served properly. Menu Terms by Joseph Gansell, published in 1908. I've scanned some of the now-yellowed papers of some recipe items and the penciled-in notes even of, I'm guessing, either my uncle Antonio, grandfather Giuseppe, or my dad. You've been listening to Station to Station. I'm Joe Pavia. All other podcasts, blogs, and photos are posted to the WordPress page. If you want to get in touch, you can leave a reply at the bottom of this page or send an email to s2spod at gmail.com. That's the number two, s2spod at gmail.com. You'll also find that address on the About Joe page of this site. Now to follow the blog via email, enter your email address at the bottom of the home page. You'll receive notification of all new posts by email. Thanks so much for listening. You take care now.